Open up your Bibles with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 3, the book of Hebrews chapter 3, as we continue to work down this blessed sermonic epistle from the inspired writer to this first century church that consisted largely of Jewish converts. Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to begin with verse 7 and read down through verse 19. Hebrews 3, beginning with verse 7, follow along as I read. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that it sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should, that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing and understanding of His Holy Word. Brothers and sisters, last week we were confronted in verse number 12 with the exhortation to take heed lest we ever tolerate an evil heart of unbelief to reside or to grow within our lives. And it was during that consideration of that morning together that we all asked the question that I put forth, do you still believe? Do you still believe? Or have you, in contrast to that, allowed an evil heart to so develop in your life that while perhaps on the outside you profess to be one of the Lord's, inwardly you are practicing unbelief. Well, if you're here today, I hope that that's some indication that you decidedly answered the question in the affirmative. Yes, I do still believe. Yes, I still trust in the promises of the gospel. Yes and amen. I'm still a disciple of Jesus Christ. I am furthermore determined that whatever sort of unbelief that I was allowing to creep into my heart, I brought it before the cross of Jesus and I've recommitted myself to follow Him 
with by His grace to persevere unto the end and not to allow unbelief to rule and to reign in my heart. Yes, 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 I still believe. Well, if this describes you, or at least in some way, maybe partially describes you, in light of the passage today, beginning with verse 13, I would like to ask you a follow-up question. If you have decided you do still believe, if you have not succumbed to a degree of unbelief that you're willing to walk away from your profession of the Lord Jesus Christ, how are you going to ensure that you will not be overcome moving forward with the hardness of heart or uh, the evil of unbelief? Or to put it another way, Christian who has affirmatively decided, yes, I still believe, who's here today, what is your plan in order that you will make it to the end steadfast in the confidence? What is your plan this morning that you will make it to heaven? Now, for many of you, I'm certain that in the exposition of these passages contained in verse or chapter number 3, especially beginning with verse number 6, you've already zeroed in on the fact and may be thinking to yourself, well, Pastor Doug, I'm going to make it to the end and I know I'm going to make it to the end because when we looked at verse number 6, we ascertained the biblical truth that Jesus Christ, He certainly will preserve me unto the end. And so yes, I have decided, I still believe I still am committed to the cross of Christ. And I, if you're asking me today uh, how I'm going to make it to heaven, what's my plan, then by God's grace, Jesus is going to preserve me unto the end and, and I'm going to stick close to Jesus. Or perhaps with many of the truths that we have been covering and, and sharing that are biblical truths, you're thinking to yourself to answer the question, uh, how am I going to make it to the end? How am I going to make it to heaven? What's my plan? Well, you are no doubt thinking of many of the promises that are in Scripture, where there is the continual supply of the Holy Spirit through His means of grace. Uh, They're going to help you, strengthen you, aid you, comfort you, ensure that you are brought back from wayward thinking. And you're thinking to yourself, well, Pastor Doug, I'm going to make sure that I tune in to every single sermon that I can in my free time, uh, on podcasts and on the internet and, and, and I'm always going to just place my ear and my mind under the preaching of God's Word because you pointed out, Pastor Doug, that the Holy Spirit will use the truth of God's Word to keep me from error and that's one way Christ will preserve me unto the end. And so, Pastor Doug, my plan moving forward to make it to heaven today after deciding I'm committed to the cross of Jesus is me and Jesus, His Word and His Spirit, and that's my ticket to heaven. Well, beloved, all of these things are true. All of these things are good. And I'm glad if you're thinking those things, which we've covered already, beginning with verse number 6, as we've spent time in this chapter, that you're thinking that way. Because it is true. However, there is something vitally important which, which must also accompany these things to ensure by Christ's plan for you that you persevere in steadfastness unto the end. 
The additional factor that I'm alluding to that must be comprehended by every single one of us who have answered the question, yes, I still believe. And yes, I'm on the true and the narrow way. The only way that you will ever make it to heaven is, as we will learn today, is in this text, especially in verse number 13, is in vital communion and continual word-centered fellowship with other Christians. This is according to the design of the way Christ will preserve you. The Lone Ranger Christian, according to the New Testament and other passages in the Bible, is nowhere to be found. And in fact, such an individual who believes that they will make it to heaven and make it to the end all by themselves, with the Bible, on an island, uh, they are exceptionally opening themselves up to be prone to wonder to the error that was admonished in verse number 12. Now immediately some of you are automatically jumping to the exceptions. Do you mean, Pastor Doug, that if I was, uh, what's the one movie where the... the, the uh, the FedEx executive, he was flying and, and his plane crashed and he was, I think it was Tom Hanks, right? And, and, and he was on the island all by himself and it was just him and a coconut, you know, that he made a friend of to psychologically get through the whole thing and then he, I don't even remember the movie, you know. But are you meaning to tell me, Pastor Doug, that, that that man, if he was a Christian when he landed in the ocean and he made it to the island all by himself, that he wouldn't go to heaven? Well, beloved, of course he would, Okay. But the pastor and the preacher who's writing to these Jewish converts here in the first century isn't building a case, building an argument on exceptions. He's meeting them and he's meeting us where we are at today in our own lives. We're not, and I don't imagine any of us here are ever going to be stranded on an island, but just for the sake, I didn't plan on saying this, but just for the sake of example, We may find ourselves alone in a prison cell someday, right? We may find ourselves like some of the persecuted church. And of course, absolutely, uh, God, through Christ and His power and His surety, will see us unto the end. But in light of today's passage, in light of the context that it meets these Christians in the first century, and also to be applied to us today, the inspired writer wants us to see that we're to fight unbelief mentioned of last week together. We're to fight unbelief. We're to fight deceitfulness of sin. We're to fight the hardening of the heart together within the local community of Christ's disciples. And so let us begin our time together this morning by looking at verse number 13 under the heading, one another watchfulness, as you have it in your notes. I'm calling it one another watchfulness. After utilizing the warning portion of Psalm 95 as his own basis for the exhortation that he gave these Christians in verse number 12, the inspired writer now here in verse 13 immediately brings this important truth to the surface that I brought up in my introduction. That in order to make it to the end, we not only in verse number 12 have to have self-reflection and self-watching, which I really tried to emphasize last week, But brothers and sisters, we're to have, as you see in your your sermon notes, group watching. There's self-watch and there's group watch. These first century Christians were not only to be watchful over themselves, have self-watch, but also over their fellow brothers and sisters in their local 
church gathering, group watch. I'm calling it the one another watchfulness. And this one another watchfulness that comes to the surface in verse number 13, it brings into his argument a new element which is connected to the admonition in verse number 12 to seriously wake up and listen and to take heed. And that new element is this, as you see in your notes. Their individual fight against sin, against unbelief, it isn't to be taking place in the context of isolationism from the rest of the local body of Christians to whom they are part of. They are not only individually to beware of the evil heart of unbelief, verse 12, but to exhort one another to be aware of the dangers which all of them were exposed to and to watch over one another in love. And notice in verse number 13, the frequency, daily, daily. They were daily to exhort one another. There is an emphasis there, isn't it, about this Daily activity of thinking of one another, of caring for one another, of understanding how it is that as I'm taking heed to myself, understanding the seriousness last week, the whole message of unbelief and how prone I am to allow it to creep in my heart, my fellow brother or sister next to me are made up of flesh just like me. And I need to not only watch for myself, but also as we're walking this you know, path together and, and, and you're getting over close to the ditch that could be in presumption or the ditch that could be despair, that I reach out to you and grab by the arm and say, hey brother, don't drift over that, far, that way any further. Be careful. I almost fell there yesterday. Watch out for that ditch. Why is this admonition in verse 13? To watch out for one another. So vitally crucial. Because we still have the old nature. There is in the Bible a teaching, especially in the epistles of of the Apostle Paul, that every single Christian carries within themselves two distinct natures. There's the old nature. You've heard me explain this before. And that's the old nature that was totally set against the things of the Lord. Was indifferent to the things of the Lord. Doesn't care about the things of the Lord. That's the old man. Paul teaches in Romans chapter 7 that even after conversion, there's still those elements deep deep within the recesses of our hearts. You mean to tell me, Pastor Doug, that when you become a Christian, that there's not like an eraser board? Or there's not like a dry erase board that, 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 you know, is in our kitchen at our house that you just spray it and it totally is wiped off and I start from a clean slate entirely? Not in the process of sanctification. Not in the process of beginning to move forward and still having all of these old ways of thinking, these old bad habits. And that's why you were admonished to daily be renewed in our minds by the Apostle Paul in his word. Because the old nature what? Wants to sit on the throne. The old nature wants to dominate. The old nature wants what he wants or what she wants. She wants to rule or he wants to rule in our lives. But there's an opposing nature within the believer, the new nature. And the new nature sincerely desires to obey the Lord. The new nature really has truly tasted the heavenly gift of Christ's affection and love for them. Uh, They really have been brought into reality that they have been forgiven of their sins. They understand the great debt of gratitude that they owe to the Savior. And that new nature within that Christian wants to obey. 
Well, the reality of this dual nature is why this group watch is so crucial and important to appreciate. Because none of us in here have only a new nature and a divine nature born from heaven above. All of us still have the remnants of corruption and sin within us. I would, I'm not going to ask. I don't hardly ask in a sermon for people to raise their hands. But I don't think one person in here would raise their hand and say, yes, I, I'm totally sinless. I don't have any remaining corruptions of sin in me. Well, since you can't raise your hand, you understand the importance of needing other brothers and sisters around you, lest the deceitfulness of your own heart lead you astray. Well, knowing this dual nature, the writer understood very well that under normal circumstances, every single Christian, every single one of us is tempted to drift in one degree or another and begin to allow an evil heart of unbelief to fester up within our lives. And it was this sort of interdependency of Christians in the local church gathering that's coupled with mutual exhortations, listen closely, that was going to serve as the means of grace by which Jesus Christ is going to preserve you unto the end. This leads us to consider then that being in a local community of other believers to walk along next with, to watch out for one another with, to serve in mutual exhortations and participate in those with and receive them and give them. It is part of the vital means you see in your notes of Christ's preservation. So it's got to be part of our understanding of our plan of how we're going to make it to the end. This concept of the importance of our interdependency upon one another in the local visible church is indeed, isn't it, a crucial part of the Lord's plan and His design of how we're going to make it unto the end following our conversion. And beloved, we must never allow the importance of our interconnectedness in this important task to ever become secondary in our minds. We have to guard our hearts to never let it be put on the shelf as some sort of unrelated aspect to how we're going to make it to the end. Because let's just be honest, one blessed thing about our American heritage is we know how to get things done by ourselves. Amen? Who's always bailing the world out? When, and we're seeing it on the world scale right now. Who's always bailing the world out when things go amok? Not in a sense of boast and pride as we submit our uh, causes unto the Lord and we believe, lest we be deceived, we're, we're moving forward in right causes, protecting innocency, uh, doing that which is just and right, so forth and so on. Beloved, in the past, Americans have been the ones who would get the things done. But with that comes also a great exhortation and admonition of us who are the rugged individual American who get things done that don't hold mustard in the local New Covenant context of the local church. I don't care how strong you are, how brave you are, how sanctified you are. In the local covenant community of the church, you need me and I need you. And I say that with a smile. I know I need you. I welcome you. I love you. I welcome the mutual exhortations because I understand that this is one of the means of Jesus Christ to help me make it to the end. This principle of how much we need one another, look in your notes. 
it comes through so clear in Ecclesiastes 4, 9-10. I know Ecclesiastes sometimes can be a difficult book, but, but look how beautiful this comes out. The inspired writer, Solomon, says, Two are better than one. Why? Well, because, he says, For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he has not another to help him up. You see the wisdom in that? You see, Christ well understood, beloved, the difficulty that already was at hand facing this first century church. And also, He understands well the difficulty facing you from inside and also outside. And therefore, the Lord wanted to remind these Christians of this crucial one another responsibility which they owed to each other. But let's just be honest for a moment. None of us enjoys confrontation. Although I have met a couple of individuals in my life, I think they live for only confrontation. And what I mean is, is normally, we want to just mind our own business. We don't want to get involved in one another's affairs carelessly or needlessly. And beloved, while there is a good amount of prudence in that sort of thinking, to get in and meddle in each other's affairs needlessly, when there is, and I'm going to put it in brackets, perceived hardness of heart, in one another's lives, we see here today that we are indeed commanded in Scripture to love one another. How? By holding forth the truth of God's Word, which is the rule and the agreed-upon guide for both of us. Now, the reason I said I put perceived hardness of heart in brackets is because often I found in my own Christian experience, as I desire to practice the one another watchfulness that we're talking about here today and be open to allow it to come to me as well, oftentimes there's just a misunderstanding. Oftentimes it's just a perceived hardness of heart or a perceived driftingness. But where it is perceived, let us be at least open to go and to have people come and share and clear the air and say, oh, man, brother, I wish I would have known that. I wish I would have come to you sooner and and really understood the whole complexity of the situation. I had it all wrong. I'm almost ashamed of the things I was thinking about what were perceived to be drifting. You see how it's going to grow people uh, closer to one another. Well, this leads us into considering that this is a shared responsibility that we have to one another, how we are to do it. If we understand on the one hand this is a design and the means of Christ, we see in verse number 13 to help us make it to the end that we're admonished to in verse number 14. And we understand, do we not, that uh, there's a lot of wisdom in walking together. Well then, how are we to do the exhortation? Because I think sometimes we hear someone say, uh, you need to be open to be exhorted. Or you need to be willing to exhort someone else. And we think that that exhortation is being combative or confrontational. But that's not what the Greek word implies. You have it in your notes as we consider this shared responsibility. How are we to exhort? Well, I gave it to you in your notes. The word carries with it four understandings of how exhortations can look. It's translated exhortation. It can be translated Uh, You see there 43 times, beseech. That's more of an imploring with someone. I'm beseeching you. 
I'm not demanding of you. I'm coming to you and I'm beseeching you. It's translated, look at there. Uh, a major- uh, 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 the second majority of time in the New Testament as the word comfort. This comes to the surface the way this word and how it is to be used and understood of how we're to exhort one another very well in the two New Testament passages I gave you. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 we see this same word translated there carrying with it the same meaning. Wherefore comfort could be translated exhort Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. Edify one another, even as also ye do. Now notice in 2 Timothy 4.12, what surrounds the word in this verse. Here Paul's telling young Timothy, he says, Preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. And look at these one another's of watchfulness coming to the surface here. Reprove rebuke, exhort, how? With all long-suffering and with doctrine. And so part of exhorting one another in this shared responsibility that we have to one another is bringing doctrine, that's why I said the Word of God, as our agreed-upon rule and guide for ourselves. And how do we do it, beloved? We do it in a way that's communicating the New Testament as beseeching someone, as coming alongside and comforting someone. And at times, that is how this exhortation, this mutual responsibility that we share takes place in the New Testament. At times, it does need to be a little bit more firmer. You're, you're so close to the brink of heresy, challenging the Trinity, for example. Brother, I have to be very sharp. After I've besought you, after I've implored with you, after I've tried to reason with you and comfort you from the Scriptures of God's truth, then there has to come the more of the firmer rebuke, right? But when we understand, um, and as, an, as I'm encouraging us to be open to mutual exhortation, we have to get out of our mind that it's this combative, confront of always type of situation. No, most of the times when it's presented in the New Testament, it's this edifying one another, walking along with one another, an openness to share with one another. And in that context, much fruit will come forth. Well, understanding the importance of it as a means of preservation in Christ, understanding the shared responsibility and somewhat of how it looks and how we're to do it. What happens, or should we say, uh, what's the result when one fails to do it? Now, it's clear that I'm sure... I'm sorry. It's clear that here they were to lovingly and sincerely watch over one another. We see that in the construction and the context of the chapter. We see it in the usefulness of the word. It's very clear they were lovingly and sincerely to watch over one another. And when they failed to do this, that is what, or that is when they allowed someone to drift farther and farther away from that truth, or when they allow someone to drift farther away from orthopraxy, practicing the truth, without any efforts to retrieve someone, They, as a local collective church body, are just as culpable and responsible for the individual that's allowing themselves to drift away. So it's a serious responsibility that an entire church has collectively. I like how one old preacher, you have it in your notes there, by the name of A.W. Pink, He sized this thought up about this joint responsibility 
of when someone does drift away and no one attempts to retrieve them. He says, as you see in your notes, oftentimes the failure of a Christian is to be charged against his brethren as much as it is to his own unfaithfulness. How often when we perceive a saint drifting unto hardness of heart, we go about mentioning it to others instead of faithfully mentioning it to the saint themselves. May that never be said of any of us in here today. Seeing this as the means of Christ, seeing that exhortation doesn't necessarily mean a confrontational combative spirit, uh, seeing that we have a shared responsibility in this and we should never fail to do it because uh, you could say the blood is on our hands if it ever were to occur. We allow someone to drift out of our sight and just continue down a wrong path without ever trying to retrieve them. This should lead us to understand, beloved, that to exist within a local church community where there is this sort of one another watchfulness is a cherished thing. It ought to be a cherished thing. Now I know there are those because of past church experiences that perhaps there wasn't mature leadership or there wasn't in the body that, that someone belonged to before a humble reliance upon the authority of God's word that many Christians today have never experienced the great blessing of being part of a church community and experienced the great blessing of being under the watchful eye of faithful brothers and sisters who love them, love the truth of God's Word, and want to be part of Christ's means to preserve them and themselves unto the end. Very few Christians in today's context, I think, have experienced such a blessing. That's a sad indictment on the state of affairs of the church today. Beloved, listen very closely. It is a blessing to be part of a new covenant community where there exists a mutual respect for the authority of God's Word and a reverence for the Lordship of Christ in everybody's lives and a willingness to come alongside when I am drifting or you're drifting and bring God's Word to the table of the conversation. That is a blessing. We ought to cherish that. It is not a blessing to be part of a church where you are told only the things you want to hear that make you laugh, that tell you how good you are. And I'm not saying there's churches that do this, but believe me, there are some churches that do this. They're called the seeker-friendly churches. This was a whole scheme that was devised uh, back in the 80s of how to uh, get the churches, I guess, more visited by the communities. And before a church would ever be planted, they would actually send messengers out in the neighborhood with questionnaires and say, what would you like to have in a church? Well, I'd like to have this and this activity. I would like to have this and this and this. And they would construct the church programs and the church preaching and everything about the church around what the individual wanted. Beloved, that's not a blessing. A blessing is being part of a real new covenant community where we all recognize that the Word of God is above us all. We love one another. We respect the authority of His Word. And not being nitpicky, 
If we walk away from today's message at all saying, wow, I don't know, that makes me nervous. It sounds like to me there's a little bit of introspective nitpickiness that he's advocating for. Read the text. Verse 13, daily exhort one another. (laughs) I've told you what exhort means. Lovingly sharing, admonishing, encouraging. That's what it means. It's a blessing to be around those who will tell you what you need to hear not what you want to hear. Isn't this the principle that comes through in Proverbs 27.6? The book of wisdom. God's wisdom to us. Look in your notes. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. There's that word deceitful. It keeps coming up again and again in this chapter. That is, moving on to our second heading, exactly what we're supposed to be watching for. As a collective body moving forward, exhorting one another, comforting one another, edifying one another, watching for one another, we are to be watching for the deceitfulness of sin. Having brought forth the importance of both practicing one another watchfulness and appreciating one another watchfulness from other people, let us now move on to notice that the Bible teaches not that sin hardens, although it doubtlessly does harden. But here we see what's being focused upon is that it's the deceitfulness, the seductiveness of sin that hardens the heart. I want to consider this deceitfulness of sin in relationship to the hardness of heart by drawing our attention back to the Garden of Eden and what transpired in the first temptation, the first deceiving of Satan with Adam and Eve. As you see in your notes, when we come back to the garden to understand the deceitfulness of sin and how it hardens, we see that deceitfulness begins always by questioning the revealed Word of God. And so if you're here today and you're saying, hey, you know what, yes, I, 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 I totally see this. Uh, I do value and I do appreciate the one another watchfulness that I need in my life and, and that I hope to faithfully exhibit in other people's lives. Um, so, so how, what is a rule? What, what is something that I can use to guide me to be prevented from ever being deceived in the deceitfulness of sin? Well, first of all, understand that deceitfulness of sin begins always with questioning God's objective revealed will in His Word. Whatever, this is God's revealed will right here. It's objective. It's not moving. It's not shifting. It's not one thing today and another thing tomorrow. That's why in Matthew 19 we made the point, you know, God still believes marriage is between one man and one woman. It's objective. That's the standard. But what did Satan do? In the first steps of deceitfulness, he questioned God's Word. He questioned God's revealed will. You see it in your notes there, Genesis 3.1. In the first temptation, using deceitfulness, what did he say? Yea, has God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You see what he's doing there? It was as if he was suggesting, surely, Eve, God wouldn't put such restrictions or limitations upon you in your experience as a woman or and, and apply to Adam as a man. Surely God wouldn't do that. Are you sure you really understand the revealed will of God? What's he doing? He's trying, he's trying to, in the first steps of deceit, was get her to question what she knew to be true. God told her, You don't eat of that tree. You can't get any more clear than that. 
Oh, but, but are you sure you really understood him? Are you sure you really uh, comprehended everything he meant by that law? Well, there was a defense that she could have implemented right then and there. And that you and I could implement in our watchfulness, so that we're not deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. And that is to stay focused upon God's revealed truth. Stay focused and fixed upon what He has said. He clearly says to us. If at that very point, beloved, Eve would have rejected these insinuations that Satan was putting forth, suggesting perhaps God really didn't intend what He said, if she would have just rejected, if she would have held her ground, if she would have rested on the glorious perfections by her divine Creator, giving her everything that she needed, right? If she would have rested in the happiness and the joy of being directly communicated by God and showing her what to believe and how to practice that belief, beloved, if she would have stayed fixed upon what God said, fixed upon Him and His will for her life, Satan would have fled. Satan would have been confounded by that and he would have fled. In other words, one crucial key in keeping oneself, keeping one another from the deceitfulness of sin here in this local church body is that we stay focused on what God says in His Word. This is the principle that underlines James 4-7 in your notes. Submit yourselves therefore to God what He has said, what He wills for your life, what He wills for us with one another, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and what? He will flee from you. Oftentimes the devil gets a foothold in churches, beloved, because we begin to individually, and then we bring it into the church, focus on things that aren't explicitly in the Bible, that we're picking up from out here in the world, these little remnants of worldliness, thinking, philosophy, whatever practices, a lot of mysticism really creeping into the churches today. And then we here come in, this member over here, this member over here, and then you get the faction over here that they all believe this thing that's not in the Bible. And what's happened? Division starts creating. Division starts happening in the Bible. Well, how did that happen? Because someone got their eye off of what God has said. Why? Because we're going to see in a moment. They were deceived and thinking that there was going to be some happiness or other fulfillment added to their life. And so that's what got them off the mark. Satan didn't give up though. Using the craft and the art of deceitfulness, using the craft of seductiveness, he proposed to Eve, didn't he? That maybe you're not right And you will actually be given a pass on that death warning that God gave. And in fact, not only will you get a pass on it, but actually your nature will change and you will become like God. And so he's appealing to her own personal happiness and fulfillment, isn't he? And he's deceiving her and thinking that what God has said, and you know he has said, really isn't true. And so through the deceitfulness of sin, Eve was led to believe that she wouldn't only expect immunity from the death warning that God gave, but that she would become like God herself. More personal happiness and fulfillment. These are, as you see in your notes, the two strongest allurements of the deceitfulness of sin that we have to watch out for one another and ourselves that we don't fall into. 
as with Eve it is today still the case, through a false hope of escaping judgment and death at the end of this life, with the allurement or the seductiveness that sin, the things of this world, will add happiness and fulfillment to me, it is as if that is gas, that is fuel, the deceitfulness of that is fuel placed on the unregenerate natural depravity of man, and he hardens his heart more and more against the truth of God. But lest we excuse ourselves as God's people, obviously the writer here to the Hebrews is communicating the fact Guard yourself and guard one another to the deceitfulness of sin. Guard yourselves. What God said is true. There's, there's no... Uh, you know, how in the world... We, we mentioned this, I think, when we were in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. We were talking about this. How in the world can anyone dance around these warning passages to the degree where there, there's no warning in them? You see the deceitfulness, what I'm talking about? The, the, the deceitfulness of sin, giving someone the impression and understanding that as long as you have your ticket, your signature in front of your Bible, that you can live any way you want. It doesn't matter because you got your ticket into heaven, you'll get there. Brothers, that's deceitfulness of sin. And you think, well, Pastor Doug, that's a hyperbole example. I can't believe you know, you're even doing that from the pulpit. Let me tell you something. As Less than five years ago, this is the year 2022, less than five years ago, I was at a social event in one of Indianapolis's biggest Baptist churches. I had three other men who were members of this big church. Now, to their credit, I don't know if their pastor was preaching this, but if not, he needed to rein these men in. But I had these three men who said this, We are so guaranteed of our salvation in Jesus. That if a man were to die in the bed of his adulterous uh, mistress, that he's still going to heaven. And I looked at him and I said, Brother, I don't know how in the world you're reading your New Testament Bible and you're coming to the conclusion that a man could leave his wife, be found dead dead in the bed of his mistress, and he's to believe to be a Christian and still go to heaven. They defended it tooth and nail. You see the deceitfulness of sin. They didn't understand the warning passages here. That man was an unbeliever. And it took him to the point, while he had a Jesus t-shirt on and a cross necklace on, he took it to the end of his life, rejecting the authority of God in his life. Obviously, if that brother was in their church, they would not practice the one another watchfulness that they ought to practice. Why would they? Right? Because he's going to heaven anyways. You see the absurdity of these things. I remember, just since I'm telling that story, I remember looking at that guy and I go, I said, I said something to the effect, surely your pastor wouldn't preach that on Sunday. You would never hear that come from the pulpit. Of, uh, I hope you would never hear from the pulpit. But if that's the doctrines you believe, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's going to be a time where he wasn't so guarded in his sermon. He'd get off his notes and he, the pastor would let it slip. You'd see that church evacuate real fast. But the point here, coming back to notes, sorry, golf notes here. The point here, beloved, is we have to watch out for the deceitfulness of sin and to help us when we do get off track, when we do 
maybe uh, lay down or surrender this shared responsibility we have, we have to come back again and again to what I'm calling you see in your notes as our nuclear option to help us to fight against unbelief. And that comes through in verse number 14. Exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, and he's reiterating what he already said in verse number 6. If, here's that conditional contingency, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Now you see in your notes, something is a little bit different here in verse number 14. It seems like he's just repeating the admonition in verse number 6. But verse 14, while it carries the same necessary conditional clause, here there is an indication that the inspired writer is emphasizing something other than what we learned in verse 6. The word translated confidence in verse number 6 carried with it the idea of a freeness of a proclamation, a liberty of speech. And so there was this idea, rightfully interpreted, that he was telling them, in order to make it to the end, don't ever become so ashamed of the gospel, the truths of the cross, the truths of the new covenant, that you're going to be uh, tempted to not confess Christ before the world, right? Uh, you, you remember we referred to the verse, uh, for those who are ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of them before the Father. And that was a right interpretation of that. But here... The English translators translated the word confidence, but it's a totally different word. Notice what it carries with it, and I think it's significant. It carries with it the idea, something that's under serving as a foundation. It's something under uh, of an edifice as a superstructure. Right Now take that and look at verse number 14 again. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our foundation unto the end. This is it. This is the nuclear option in the church. When we get off track, when we allow things to come into the church that are not in God's Word, um, however they get there, beloved, and it begins to you know, get us to doubt, it begins to get us to question, it begins to cause divisions and problems, we have got to come back to the foundation that we are here for the purposes of Christ and Christ alone. It is for His glory that are to humble the pride of everyone involved in any sort of one another watchfulness situation. Any person in the context of chapter number 3 who's even on the brink of drifting away so far that they're going to turn their back on the gospel, you come back and how many times we got to do this? This is part of exhorting one another. Hey, you don't make it to heaven on your own works. By your own righteousness, dear brother, it's on the foundations of Christ. Stop walking in that direction. Turn around. It's not over. There's still repentance held forth. You see the point here? The point is is that this is the nuclear option that we have to pull out in our journeys with one another, in exhorting one another, in order that we make it unto the end, brothers and sisters. It is Christ and Christ alone. Now, there was many of those who failed in this fight against unbelief, even though they were, they were given such a beautiful community to do so in ancient, ancient Israel, uh, Israel, especially in the wilderness example. And this is what's described in verses 15 to 16. He goes back to the, 
use of the illustration in Psalms 95. He says, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. There was, remember, we looked at that in Psalms 95, the idea of a contesting against God. There was a season in the life of the Israelites while they were in that wilderness when God was giving them the parting of the Red Sea, they wholeheartedly trusted Him. There was no contest. They had Pharaoh and his army at their back. They knew to go in that direction was going to be sure destruction. And so they weren't contesting. They weren't questioning God at all, nor His leader, were they? They were going right along with it. It was great. It was wonderful. But no sooner that they got through the trial, what? There was the provocation. They begin to murmur. They begin to complain. Uh, then there was the report from Caleb and, and Joshua saying, hey, um, in order to move forward like God's told us to do, His revealed will, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a lot of war. And these guys are big and they're tough. And what did the majority of them say? Oh, no, I, I don't think we maybe really didn't understand you know, God right. Uh, maybe maybe, maybe you know, going back to Pharaoh indeed probably is better than going forward and believing in God. You see, there was this contesting of God's revealed will. And it was in that season that many of them gave up the fight, but not all of them. Caleb, Joshua, uh, some of, many of the children, a lot of the women, according to the book of Numbers, they were still able to go on, weren't they? And so we come back here and we see in verse number 15, Today, if you'll hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of the contest. This could speak into the life of any New Testament church today. Is there a contest? Are, are we contesting God in, we, in His revealed will? Have we allowed a practice into the church? Um, uh, an office into the church? An idea, a philosophy? No matter how majority of the church members believe it, that's really not in the Bible, and that's become the kind of the consensus. You see, we're contesting God. Today, hear His voice. It's your responsibility and it's my responsibility to come alongside one another and say, hey, we're contesting God. Today's the day we need to hear His voice, brother. Let's exhort one another. This has crept in here. And we have to, according to Galatians 6.1, with meekness and gentleness, bring this before the brethren. Open up the Word of God. And as you saw, as we looked at what the Word uh, exhort men and how to do it, especially there in 1 Thessalonians, with what? We're supposed to be long-suffering. Long-suffering. Today, if you will hear His voice, many times in most situations, when God's voice, and you see me holding up the Bible here, is brought to the table, what happens? I, I don't want to hear what that says. They've wronged me. You're the minority. Etc., etc., you see. No one wants to really take the voice of God serious. And so they've given up the fight. They're not wanting to fight together. They've, they've surrendered the idea that we have God's word as our agreed upon standard and rule. And with that, dear brother, you and I, we fight together. I need to be humble to it. You need to be humble to it. I need to be willing to surrender and say I'm wrong. You need to be willing to say you're, you're wrong when you're wrong. Amen? God forbid that there ever comes a provocation in His own blessed house from His people to reject, to kick against, and fight against His voice. Verse 16 is just the idea that not everyone gave up the fight. There was a remnant. 
For some, when they had heard, they did provoke, howbeit not all of them that came out of Egypt by Moses. Thank God for Caleb. Amen. Thank God for the example of Joshua who said, no, we heard God's voice. God told us what to believe. And I don't know how y'all forgot that he parted that Red Sea back there and that he's been feeding us supernaturally for almost 40 years now. But, but I'm going with God. I'm going to believe God. Amen? Why in the world are we so timid? We're so embarrassed, so shy of confronting that within the house of God that needs to be confronted with, as I've said before, I know I'm a little animated, but I've said it before, with long-suffering and patience. Why? Well, Caleb and Joshua and several others weren't. They fought on belief together. They stuck together as God's people. They had God communicate to them His will for their lives. They encouraged one another, Sister Sarah. They exhorted one another to move forward and do the difficult things that God had them to do. What an example for us, and the writer of Hebrews will come up to it later in Hebrews 11. But there are many who gave up the fight. Sadly, we, we, we wrap it up looking at that in verse 17 through 19. But with whom was he grieved for 40 years? Was it not with them that it sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? All of those who, who, who gave up the fight, they settled in unbelief. They had God's word. They knew what he wanted, but they said no. And then they got a couple others to say no. And then there was a majority of them that walked in unbelief. And so they all felt okay about themselves. We see what their end result was. They were left there in the wilderness, their carcasses for the vultures to eat. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest. We're going to get into that statement a lot next chapter. It's beautiful. And so we see that they could not enter because of what? Unbelief. And it was a it started off individually, but then we see it was corporately. And so, under the heading today of fighting unbelief together, beloved, let us watch one another. Let us be careful to watch one another. I have two closing thoughts as you have them in your notes for Christians and unbelievers. For the Christian today, we have seen, and I hope you agree with me, the limitless wisdom of our Savior How have we seen it? By ensuring we make it unto the end. How? Through the inseparable union with one another as brothers and sisters within the familial family bonds of the new covenant. Limitless wisdom. Can't say any more about it. You need me as much as I need you. This is the wisdom of Christ. Unlike the physical Israel, which pointed their covenant ties with Abraham, We, beloved, as the Paul describes, are the spiritual Israel whose covenant ties lie in that eternal transaction within the Godhead by which an elect seed was given unto the Son. And the Son came into time, space, and history. And He gave His life for them as a ransom. We, dear friends, we, dear church, are Christ... I'm sorry, we we are not Christ. We are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. You and I are the spiritual Israel of Christ. I hope that we never take that for granted. Because this is a wonderful privilege. 
A wonderful privilege that you and I experience on earth on this side of glory. Don't ever forsake it. Cherish it. Before the dinner prayer yesterday, I just was like, Lord, thank you so much that tomorrow our family has somewhere to go where I know you guys, you love God's Word. You want God's Word. You want it to rule and guide your lives. None of us in here are raising our hands earlier that we're perfect. But I said, God, thank you that my family can come somewhere where I know these brothers, they will come alongside me if I begin to fall into a ditch of error. That they will speak to me in truth and love. That I I know enough about them that they, they, they do desire the Lordship of Christ in their life. By all their sanctified ability, Lord, they're seeking to follow You. And I have the great privilege to come here to talk with You. To listen to what God's doing in Your life. To lift up my my voice with you as we worship. What a what a blessing that is. Think of just for a moment, all of the people right now that are fleeing out of Ukraine. Many Christians there this morning, and I'm sure they're gathered together as the sun. I don't know. I may be off on this. I think I think when it's evening time here, the sun's going to be rising over there to be Sunday morning. So when you're eating dinner. Those Christians out in those cold fields, probably in their cars, in those big convoys, are going to be opening up their Bibles. Open up their Bibles and praying with one another. Exhorting one another. God's still in control. God's still with us. This is going to work out for our good somehow. We just know it. You see what a cherished privilege it is to be here today with one another. What about the unbeliever? that may hear this message or be even here today, lest I be deceived. I truly pity you in light of this fact of how the local community of the Christians are to pull together and fight together because you're all alone. The world in which you exist, many of us in this room know it's a cold world. It's violent. And it only seeks that from you that will feed its own lusts and its own desires. This world system that you have decided to join forces with and be part of outside of Christ's church, it's going to use you and it's going to abuse you. It will take from you and it will never give back to you. And the only friends that you will ever know are those who most likely will only be your friend for what you can do for them or give them. The only friends or acquaintances that will ever treat you with any level of respect Dignity or kindness is someone who's going to be connected with Jesus and His church. And I'm certain if you're standing there in your heart's posture thinking you don't need the church, you don't need Jesus. You're thinking, I don't need them because I've seen Christians act in really bad ways. But I would put before your consideration that on a normal basis, you see unbelievers acting in a much worse way. Today you must decide, unbeliever, who will fight with you in this life. And there is but one way, one way and hope for you. It starts at the cross of Jesus Christ. And as a new covenant community of Christians who have been to the cross of Christ, we say come. We welcome you. All of us who have committed our lives to the cause of Christ as a body, we stand willing to support you 
and to help you in your new gospel life. Come to Christ today. Join his family. Fight unbelief with us together. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it contains for us the great promises and the great privileges that have been given to us through the work of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. We thank you that we can find certainty and hope in the divine wisdom of Jesus and the various means that he, O Lord, will utilize to keep us unto the very end from straying and drifting afar into ever an evil heart of unbelief. Father, we thank you that your word, it cuts at times. We thank you that it is like a two-edged sword, as we will learn very soon in this blessed letter to the Hebrews. And Father, when it does cut, I pray that you will, by your Spirit, give us, O Father, the wisdom to see that you're pruning away in our lives, our understanding, our thinking, that which, O God, needs to go and needs to be put away. Help us, I pray, Father, to pull together as your sons and your daughters and to fight unbelief together unto the very end. I thank you, God, for these dear brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you, O Lord, for the privilege of being here today with them. And I pray, O God, that you will grow our hearts closer to one another as we seek to honor you by, dear Lord, allowing your word and allowing one another as rooted in your word, Father, directs us. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.